0: Hey, uh, before we get going, I want to tell you about our sponsor this week, Casefleet. If you use facts in your job, and you could be a journalist, you could be a lawyer, anyone who has hundreds of dates, thousands of documents, and dozens of witnesses to wrangle knows that it's not an easy task. Casefleet's revolutionary chronology and document review software will help you organize your case or tell a story. You can sign up for a 14-day free trial at casefleet.com slash longform. I'm going to pop up in the middle of the show and tell you more about it, but if you do sign up at casefleet.com slash longform, you'll also get 10% off your first subscription. Here's the show.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff, joined here by Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer, all of us in three different locations. Hey, guys. Hey, you guys.
0: Hey. It's a snazzy, uh, th- what, is, what do you call that on your desk there, Evan? It's like a personal booth?
1: Oh, yeah. I got this little thing to uh, improve my sound here at my desk. Any listeners
0: can let us know how that went. <laughs> Doing the boring thing where I talk about things people can't see. (laughs) Who's on the show this week, which you can listen to? Uh, This week, I spoke to Dana
1: Goodyear, who is uh, a longtime staff writer for The New Yorker Magazine uh, in Los Angeles. And I have, for many years, uh, loved reading her profiles of all things West Coast, Hollywood, food, arts, you name it. And she currently has a podcast out that's a little bit different from a lot of her past work uh, called Lost Hills. And it's kind of rolling out week by week. I think episode six has just dropped. And it's about a random and very tragic murder that took place in a park in Malibu. And a series of sort of unsolved serial shootings that preceded it. A lot of bumbling police work and her own investigation, which took place over several years of trying to figure out what's going on. The show's a great listen, and we talked about what went into reporting it, how it was different from her New Yorker work. We also talked about her New Yorker work, and it was a great conversation. At some point, I feel like maybe we just need to do a whole episode that's about going from writing long-form magazine features to doing podcasts. I feel like so many of the guests we have on now are like magazine writers turned narrative podcast makers. And at some point, maybe we should just dedicate a whole episode to that transition.
0: Yeah. It's a thing. We should do a super cut. I have, I've had this on the top of my queue. I do. I do agree. I feel like, uh, uh I've had a very high batting average with the uh, New Yorker writers, uh, lapsing into podcasts so far as a listener. So I'm excited for this one. It's the place to be. And another thing I'm excited about is MailChimp and their incredible newsletter service, which plugs into all of the different platforms you already use, and does all kinds of reporting so you can understand your audience better than anywhere else on the web. Do it with Mailchimp. They bring this show to you every week. Thank you to Mailchimp.
1: And now here's Evan with Dana Goodyear. Dana, welcome to the Long Form Podcast.
2: Thank you so much. It's
1: very nice to have you. I uh, The excuse for this is that you have this uh, show out right now, which seems to be a big hit. So congratulations on that. And I've also been really enjoying it. But it's interesting because I think of you as a profiler, not only profiles, but you've written about all sorts of things. But I particularly always remember these profiles that you've done, some of which are about pretty highbrow folks in some cases that you're able to capture these people. And then this show came out, which I did not know was coming. I had not heard anything about. And you're kind of like, uh, you're grubbing around in the underworld of Malibu in the, with the cops and investigating a murder. And it seemed like something different for you. And I, in this show, you kind of describe it as something different. So I kind of wanted to start with a show and we'll get back to some of your other writing in a little bit and just find out how did this start?
2: So a few years ago in 2017, I reported a story in Malibu about the mountain lion population out there. Right, right. And I knew the area a little bit just from hiking, but uh, I didn't have a sense of this sort of very different Malibu, which is a little bit more, you know, you see really strange things when you're spending time in those hills. You see groups of teenagers in camouflage walking around in the hills. There are old, now defunct, sort of youth detention centers up there. There are all kinds of stories about mysterious goings on. And and getting into the mountain lion research, this sort of shadier Malibu started to emerge in my imagination and what I was learning about. And Then, you know, when I heard about this murder that happened in Malibu Creek State Park, which was an area I had been with wildlife biologists exploring and and getting that kind of shivery, creepy feeling that there were lots of things happening here that really weren't ever kind of connecting to the popular idea of what Malibu Mm -hmm. is. And, And that always interests me when there's a seam between what appears to be and what is. And so this murder was so awful and it was so inexplicable, you know, and the person that it happened to, the victim, Tristan Beaudet, was this utterly relatable character, you know, this dad who was camping with his young children. And so right away, I just thought, I, I want to figure out how this happened there. You know, the one thing anybody thinks about Malibu is that it's one of the safest places to live in this county, Mm -hmm. and you don't really hear about violent crime there, and you definitely really don't hear about random violent crime there. So it seemed like there was definitely more to that story than what was, and, and also very little was available at first. So I just right away started going out there and trying to figure out what had happened.
1: And is this something that if you live in L.A., it was in the news a lot. It was on the news all the time. It was, I never, I didn't hear of it. Like, i had never heard of it. And I, I have that sort of distant view of Malibu as a ritzy place and such and such lives there. and and But was this something that everyone was talking about or was kind of a fleeting thing and you just grabbed it?
2: It was such a shocking event that anyone at all local probably heard about it. So meaning, you know, people in LA County heard about it. It was also a national headline and I think briefly an international headline and that's simply to do with the Dateline Malibu aspect of it mm-hmm. because it, it is true that things that happen there do garner more attention. I mean, it's kind of a weirdly a uh, consumer product, the idea of Malibu. So, And I think that contradiction of, you know, wait, this happened in Malibu? Bad stuff doesn't happen in Malibu, which is, of course, something that victims and their families were told repeatedly in the aftermath of these violent events. This kind of thing doesn't happen here. Well, it just did happen here. So what does it mean that there's this persistent repetition of the almost like a mantra of, you know, bad things don't happen here? It's actually incredibly unsettling and creepy to have officials and law enforcement figures saying that to victims and their families.
1: And so when you say you started going out there, do you first call up an editor and say, hey, I'm thinking about doing this? Or do you start going out there before you even know what the story is?
2: The very, very first thing that happened is that a friend of mine who lives in the... There's a a little neighborhood right across from the park, and she said, you know, this is in the summer of 2018 when, after the murder of Tristan Baudet, the story of earlier victims started to come out, and those had all been kind of kept quiet by law enforcement, but those stories bubbled up, and my friend who lives there was calling me and saying, I've called 911 multiple times. There's shots in the night every, you know, so often. And so she and I had a long kind of download coffee. And that's the first thing that (laughs) happened. I was like, okay, tell me everything. Um, And then I called my editor. And my editor at The New Yorker is Nick Troutwine, who's just absolutely wonderful editor. And we talked about how to do a story for The New Yorker when everything is unresolved. They didn't have a, a suspect. Nobody was in custody. It was all in a state of total mystery at that point. So I was the most interested to be starting the reporting at that point. Mm-hmm. Because I figured once it was all tied up in a bow, everybody would write about it. And it would be hard to be have any kind of unique point of entry, I guess. And But that's not really... The New Yorker likes resolution. And so back in September of 2018, we were talking about this. And, you know, luckily, the New Yorker has a very um, robust website now. So we talked about, well, maybe the way to do it as a sort of serialized story would be on the web. And we had that conversation. And then I remember calling him back probably that same day and saying, actually, I want to do this as a podcast. I feel like this would work so well. And in that medium the lack of resolution is actually helpful it Mm -hmm. gives you space to tell your story and he said i don't know anything about podcasts and then we you know the new yorker has a a radio show so there was a moment where we were talking about figuring something out for that but the other thing that was tricky about that is they haven't done long form in the audio format yet so I I'm sure that will happen at some point but my story needs were more immediate and I I thought I had a really good um recorder for doing print interviews but (laughs) turns out there's more to it than that (laughs) and so the, the
1: first sound engineer or producer said this is garbage yeah, exactly. Else.
2: Like I don't I don't think we can use that. <laughs> Didn't you realize there was music in the cafe? You know, um so the people at the New Yorker Radio Hour actually introduced me to Ben Adair, who's a local LA podcast producer with his own studio and company and he'd done some work out in Malibu before, a different type of project, and we met up in September and just immediately saw this is such a tangled web this is going to take a bunch of episodes it's not one episode of the radio hour which would have been amazing to do but it it would have captured a very small slice of the story and I was interested enough that I felt like I needed to just invest as much time as the story would take to tell and by October I had Um, had my first conversation with Erica Wu, Tristan Baudet's widow, and she was telling me that she was completely in the dark and that it was impossible for her to find anything out. And so this kind of almost presented itself as a challenge. Like, how can I figure this out? This feels like a puzzle that there must be a solution, but everybody's saying that, you know, three quarters of the pieces are blank with no image on them.
1: Well, that gets to a question that I had about her and about dealing with the victims, because uh, one of the big challenges in in this type of crime reporting or true crime or whatever genre boundaries it crosses is sort of the ethical and moral moral parts of dealing with the victims and trying not to do something that feels exploitative. I was wondering how you initially started talking to to her and to his family overall. But it sounds like that happened actually very, very early on.
2: It was early on. I found his brother and had a couple of phone conversations with him. And he said, I'll reach out to Erica for you and see if she has anything she wants to say. And she was understandably very reluctant. And... I think her main question was how is this useful? She's a very practical person too mm-hmm. and I think she ended up feeling first of all she was so disoriented in October of 2018 and but I think she had an instinct that it would be something useful and good to let him have an existence in public that was something more than the way he died, which wasn't something that he chose or ever could have imagined.
1: And do you think that if you had come to her at that later point, the point that was sort of discussed with you and your editor, well, let's wait, you know, after they arrested someone, do you think she ever would have talked to you?
2: I think by then... Anthony Rauta had been arrested, actually. He Mm -hmm. was arrested October 10th, 2018, Mm -hmm. and I think I spoke to her maybe a week later. Oh, wow. But I think that one of the things that was really powerful for me about having a long arc to my conversations with her was that I saw her change and her orientation around the events evolved and her children are growing up and changing. And... Seeing that is um, actually really moving to me. The For everything that they have been through and will continue to go through, there has been a kind of healing process that has been initiated. And being a witness to that, I just find on a human level, stirring. You know, one of the things when I first went to her new home in the Bay Area, mm-hmm. um, she showed me these paintings that, her older daughter had made with tristan her father where he would start something and she would finish it and then there was an unfinished one that the older daughter had made and wanted to display at the memorial i mean this is a small child with that kind of uh, so anyway i i just thought that was very moving to me that that was kind of art was part of this child's process and then when I most recently spoke to Erica, she told me that that child who's now in first or second grade had, for all this intervening time, had been making family portraits that didn't include her father and has just started making family portraits of the four of them again. So Erica, Tristan, and the two girls. Mm. And there's just something like I can see healing in that. And I think that that just when I'm thinking about who I'm actually talking about, I always keep those children in mind and that process in mind. So it is tricky. It is a line.
1: And it, it feels like one possibility is that it can go too far in one direction, which is having the family in your mind. And you're trying to also tell a story. I mean, it sounds like you're still interviewing with her and you're still close to her. So she must not be unhappy with with what you've done. But they might want a different show. They might want a different story told in a different way than you want to tell, even as you're trying to keep their interests and their pain in mind.
2: Well, I think where we're aligned is that I don't ever want to do anything that's sensationalist. And I think that that would be aesthetically offensive to me. And I think it would be emotionally offensive to her. And those—and aesthetics and emotion are really wrapped up in each other. So I think that we have the same perspective on that. So I also don't think that she has— listen to the podcast i don't Mm. i don't think she plans to and i totally understand that but i do feel comfortable in my many conversations with her that i have represented what it is and it was really important that non-essential details about erica and tristan's growing up remained in the story Mm -hmm. because i promised her i i would tell their story so i you know you don't want to go in saying you're going to do that and then just cut to the most devastating part of their life together that wouldn't be right yeah but i i know you know this too i mean that there are kind of compacts that you make with the people that you talk to who tell you things and so you just have to honor the ones that feel worthy of honoring <laughs>
1: Well, we'll get to the police part of it in a second, which I feel like it's <laughs> possibly related to the other side of that. But when you went out reporting, you know, when you're starting out, you're now reporting for audio. How was it different for you from your normal process when you would go report for Print Story? I mean, other than the, the very obvious element of you're sticking a microphone in someone's face you your own.
2: But also I'm with someone else a lot right. then. I mean, I did some of the recordings myself. Probably not the best ones. But uh, yeah, to have a colleague with me was so unusual. I mean, I've rarely even been reporting with photographers. Yeah. So that was interesting, too. And I, I think it having the equipment and having the other person reminds people of the scenario that they're in. And I always sort of thought reporting for print that that would impede the relationship or my observation. But I didn't feel that at all, actually. I find it really, really helpful to compare notes with another person who's observing the same stuff. And oftentimes that other person would have noticed something or wandered over there and seen something that I didn't see. So I I felt that in the way that audio also adds this other dimension, I felt like having another highly attuned and engaged observer was really helpful.
0: Hey, this is your co-host, Aaron. Uh, I'm going to pause things here to tell you briefly about our sponsor this week, Case Fleet. So I've been working on a new project, which I'll tell you about in the next couple weeks on the show. And that project involved a lot of facts. It's a podcast miniseries. And I was having trouble keeping them straight because they were spread across my Gmail and my Google Docs, and I'd be opening up a PDF, and pretty quickly I would get lost. And there was no way to put all of these PDFs and dates in order until I found CaseFleet. So what I did with CaseFleet is I uploaded all my documents. It magically recognized the dates on them, I don't know how it does that. Even if they're in a fuzzy match, it still puts them in order. So that I was able to visualize on a timeline. And when I was looking for things on that timeline, I could click directly into them, open them, and see what facts from what sources went where. This was life-changing. If you're a journalist or you're a lawyer, an investigator – Whatever it is you're doing, if you rely on facts, I think you could really benefit from CaseFleet. You get a 14-day free trial as a listener to this show. If you go to CaseFleet.com slash longform, you'll get 10% off your first subscription. Thanks to CaseFleet. Back to the show.
1: There are those situations you get into for print reporting where the person, you can tell they've, it's faded into the background that you're a reporter, you spent enough time with them. And then, at least for me, I start to wonder, should I remind them? But this is the stuff that I've come here to get, you know, and you at least avoid that scenario where you're sort of stuck wondering if they actually have lost track of the fact that you're a reporter.
2: Yeah, (laughs) there's no doubt you've got these big headphones on. (laughs) But it's sort of, you know, in a funny way, I used to, I'm actually, like, I'm sort of a recovered, shy person in a way. And when I used to go to things in New York to report for Talk of the Town when I was starting out writing for The New Yorker, I felt like having a reporter's notebook was such a, um, it was like my cloak of anti-invisibility. Like, it gave me an excuse to be somewhere where I didn't feel like I totally could or should be. And it gave me a way of entering a world that wasn't my world without feeling uncomfortable, actually feeling kind of protected and cloaked by having this reporter's notebook. And there's a way in which I've always really liked having that. That's kind of like how I now have, uh, at least for the time being, Sheriff's Department press credentials. (laughs) And I feel really confident when I go into court to report. It's like having a bit of a uniform of some kind. So I actually like that. I don't feel so comfortable when the the who are you and who am I boundary gets too eroded. Mm-hmm. That makes me nervous.
1: And the, the character in the podcast, the, the local reporter, who's, she's like a self-made reporter. I mean, she's almost adopted that herself. Like she made her own, did she make her own press credentials? She
2: did. She did. Now she's very, very close to the sheriff of Los Angeles (laughs) County. So I think she has her own uh, sheriff's department press credentials now. But yeah, when I met her, she had worked that up at Kinko's, I think.
1: At what point did you, I mean, the the sort of like cast of characters, just setting aside the seriousness of the crime and, and the victims that we just talked about, there's also just like, there's a really kind of zany cast of characters around Malibu that you find? And did you sort of know that going in? Or did you discover that along the way that this would be the case?
2: Well, I have been to Malibu. So (laughs) (laughs) I I know that, you know, I knew that there were probably going to be some extremes. And I think that the local flavor there is, you know, it's hilarious. And it had a kind of like a beach twin peaks feeling to me. Um, People are so exaggerated in. In themselves and in their identities. Um, but I didn't know how delicious and kind of hilarious some of the people would be and some of the encounters. I mean, you just, in any little mall, you might run into anyone. And that's kind of, I think, what interests tourists about Malibu, is you go there thinking you might see, you know, Miley Cyrus or something. But I went there hoping I was going to find you know the mayor and there he was so <laughs>
1: there he was just wa- wandering by for a, for a quick conversation i also i really like the vegan cafe guy i felt like that was <laughs> a moment where just listening to that person talk that perhaps you might have just just let it run for another couple minutes just because it was good stuff
2: well there is this kind of malibu world that is incredibly privileged and incredibly self absorbed um but it's also trying to be in touch with sort of the spirit side. And some of that was just perfectly expressed in this guy who said, you know, all my friends fly me on private jets all over the world because I can make them the smoothie they want in the morning. And, (laughs) you know, this is a guy who told us also that, you know, he'd been homeless in Malibu. He'd been a drug dealer and a crack addict in Malibu. So he's seen the low down Malibu and the the heights of the high Malibu so
1: Mm -hmm. now the police your interactions with the police and I'm I'm midway so I don't know the resolution of this this feels like one of the cliffhangers for me in the show is just it's so strange like they're so solicitous sometimes and then they're so stonewalling sometimes and what were your sort of expectations of what you would get from the police when you started when they were still you know looking for a, a suspect
2: Uh, Well, I was incredibly, incredibly naive. Um, I thought that you could just go and say, I'm a reporter. I want some information. (laughs) And that's not really how the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department works, it turns out. So I kept trying to interact with individuals who I had heard were important. And I didn't understand at all how they fit into this larger picture at that point so it's funny now to go back to my email history and see who I was trying to get what from and how I somehow thought, you know, I'm a staff writer at the New Yorker was going to hold any sway with them. It it did not. But I had I had a a source who was pretty close to the operations in the early days of looking for a suspect. And so I was able to find out a few things and, you know, have a few stepping stones and starting points, but it literally took years for those to pay off. And so that was something that I learned from this story is how patient you have to be to do anything investigative. There's just no way to have people who are professionally trained to extract information, not provide information trust you in a short period of time. So I did start going to sheriff's department events also. like They do have these public events where they give out medals and things like that. And so I started going to those, seeking out the people from the station and trying to build some familiarity. But the other thing that kept happening is that everyone I kind of made some inroad with would suddenly go out on medical leave, retire without notice, be transferred, and put under investigation. So even if something started to germinate, you know, immediately the whole thing would be off and I'd have to start over again. So, you know, the Woolsey fire I actually thought was going to provide um, an opportunity because I knew that the search and rescue team was part of this whole Story. I knew that Mal- Malibu Search and Rescue is a really interesting unit within the Lost Hills Sheriff Station. And one of the things that's interesting about it is that most of the people on that team are volunteers. They're entertainment lawyers and yoga instructors and ER doctors, and they have all kinds of different jobs in the world. And they go out on Malibu Search and Rescue uh, when their phone rings with the special ringtone. But their leader was uh, somebody named Sergeant Tui Wright, who ended up being a really central figure for me. Mm -hmm. Um, But when the fire started, I'd written about past fires, and I knew I would need to do some fire reporting, but I thought I could make these two things kind of work together for me where maybe I could go out with the search and rescue team. Maybe I could. So I. Almost got to do it, and I got Sergeant Wright's phone number in that process because he was supposed to take me out fire reporting, and they canceled it at the last second. The someone in the sheriff's department was very nervous about me from the very beginning and kept kind of putting the kibosh on all, even the most innocent mini embeds to showcase the work of a team that was saving lives in Malibu. Right. No, they were they didn't wanted nothing to do with me, so. But I had Sergeant Wright's number, and when I heard that he retired a long time later, I was able to sit down with him at that point. And then the whole story opened up for me in a different way.
1: So then when you finally had the material, or over the years you had accrued the material and the story was developing, how did it differ your process from putting together a 5,000 to 10,000 word magazine story and trying to construct this different kind of narrative.
2: I've never whiteboarded before. Have you ever whiteboarded before?
1: I've, I've used Post-its <laughs> yeah. for that purpose, yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, in, in writing magazine stories, I, I always feel like the moment that I'm starting to think in outline form almost like that thing we learned how to do in sixth grade, I think, where you do the Roman numeral one. That that sort of spine, the, the vertebrae of that are still kind of internal for me. So at a certain point in reporting for the magazine, I'll find myself going to my legal, my longer pages, not my little reporter's notebook, but my big legal pad and putting the Roman numerals. And I'm like, oh, I guess I'm ready to write because it's starting to take shape in that form now. In this case, I did versions of what I thought the sort of paced out eight episodes would be. But then new interviews kept happening and new information kept coming to light. And then there were, you know, also there's sort of the a bit of a tick-tock of the court reporting aspect, too. So there's just always more that needed. And every new piece of information would sort of reframe the earlier episodes. But I do think that it was kind of fortunate for me that most of the in-person reporting was done by the time the pandemic started. So the pandemic year was a lot about rearranging the puzzle pieces and figuring out the writing. But we did have to do finally, you know, none of us had seen each other for a long time who were working on the podcast. And then finally I said, like, we, I need a whiteboard. Like, we have to do this together. And so we did some socially distanced, masked, outdoors, whiteboarding sessions that were incredibly helpful. Um, I think the main shift for me in thinking about the structure with this has to do with letting time be an element. So it sort of feels like, you know how in painting, There's not an element of time. You're apprehending everything at once. Mm -hmm. And then in sculpture, people talk about the element of time because a sculpture is durational in a different way and you move around it, for one thing, and experience different perspectives. That sort of feels to me like the difference here. Of course, a magazine story is a long one, you know it takes an hour and a half to read. so there is a tiny element of of time, and you try to build in some change in from you know the first drop cap to the whatever symbol ends. <laughs> whatever that's called has a name. <laughs> whatever that is the f- <laughs> yeah, whatever that is. I forgot I used to know that, but but I think that the point of view, the narrator point of view is more fully aware the entire time in a magazine story. Mm-hmm. And maybe that has to do with establishing authority or maybe that has to do with not having enough time for there to be doubt or to be wrong or to be uncertain. And something about this was a real shift in my voice. First of all, I am not usually a big part of my magazine stories. Yeah, I, I mean, I am there, but I'm a little bit veiled, I guess, and In this story, you know, the first-person pronoun is prevalent. Like, I am telling you what I am learning as I'm learning it. And so it feels more sculptural to me in that way, that you're moving around the story with me, you're seeing it from different points of view, and then you can apprehend it as a totality only at the very end. Mm -hmm. So it's more of a journey from... (laughs) total confusion to some kind of uh, frightened apprehension (laughs) at the end than a magazine story which would kind of assume that you know everything at the moment you sit down to write,
0: Mm -hmm. or you know
2: everything you can. You don't write until you know everything you can know. And in this case, I had to start telling the story before I knew where it was going. And that's all captured in the tape that ends up being the story.
1: So you, I'm not going to spoil what it is, but you do, you make a significant discovery in relation to the investigation. And I had to imagine that you were sort of desperate to like have that happen. But was that, did it feel central to you to like, I need to figure out something that no one else has figured out here in order to make this work? Or is that just, it just happened and you weren't expecting that to happen?
2: I was not expecting that to happen. I was really just trying to report out every one of these divergent lines that I saw from the beginning and follow the relationships where they would let me get to and, and see, could I find, what's the most I could find out about this victim? What's the most I could find out about the suspect? What's the most I could find out about the officials and law enforcement people who had been charged with protecting this community? And so what you're referring to is late in the story, and I was ready to write that episode without having seen what I now think I saw. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's hard to describe. In the, it's hard to talk about the abstract a little bit, but it's a piece of, can we say it's a piece of evidence?
2: Yeah. I can say that it's a photograph. And it's a photograph that I had had for a long time. And I had looked at a whole bunch of times. And I had breezed past it because I thought it was nothing. And then when I sat down to write the episode, by that point, I'd learned a whole bunch of other stuff and done a whole new category of of research. And then when I looked back through those pictures one more time, just thinking, oh, I'm writing about this part of the story. I should go look at those pictures that relate to this part of the story I was completely surprised completely shocked and it was only because of the knowledge that I had gained in the meantime that I was able to see this nothing in the picture as a as a potential something <laughs> and that was kind of a crazy realization for me just as a person who goes out in the world to a, and whose only skill is maybe being able to observe things mm-hmm. to realize how I hadn't been able to see this thing for what I now think it is. I keep thinking about, a a couple of years ago, um, I wrote a profile of a writer, director named Florian von Donnersmark.
1: I love that story.
2: Thank you. And he's somebody, I I always learn, just because you mentioned profile writing at the beginning, I, I love writing profiles because, you know, I, get to talk to these mostly totally incredible people and kind of learn their secrets. Um, And Florian is this towering intellect, and he's also 6'9", and so he's towering, (laughs) towering. But he had understood something about the life story of Gerhard Richter, the German painter, by looking at his paintings and he had intuited an incredible drama hidden inside Richter's life that had not been out in the world. And he just understood it from looking at these paintings so carefully and in sequence, having an intuition about why the style differed and what it might mean. And I was so amazed by the power of that insight and it turned out that he was right and and he made a this incredible movie about it but it was sort of a fictionalized richter but in the fact-checking process richter basically said yeah he's right (laughs) and i just i kept thinking about florian in this part of my work because just that idea that you could look at something for a long enough time and then finally understand it. And there's something incredible about that to me. And it makes me feel like it's okay to be myopic for a long time, maybe (laughs) for, you know, as long as you finally get some insight. So that's kind of how I understand that. And what this thing is, this potential piece of evidence, what it tells me is what more than anything else, is what law enforcement didn't see or didn't do in this case. So, you know, I'm not saying I found a piece of evidence that will have any bearing one way or the other on the outcome of the criminal trial of the suspect. But what it showed me pretty conclusively is that law enforcement, even once they had a theory and once they had a suspect, they didn't get all the evidence that they could have.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's not entirely. It's amazing that I found this. It's why didn't they find this?
2: That's so much more what it is. Yeah, it's incredible that they didn't collect this as a piece of evidence, given what they were looking for. Mm-hmm.
1: So you you got into that profile. So I I do want to go back to that because I want to talk a little bit about how you how you developed that your own kind of way of seeing and how you how you got started doing this in the first place and ended up writing those profiles. So, if we could step back into the past for a second, I'm interested to know how you got your start in all of this. Cuz also you're you're a poet as well. So, I'm interested w- if you were considering other avenues.
2: So, I when I was in college, I was I don't know what I thought I meant by this, but I thought I was going to be a poet, <laughs> and and I think my family was like, "Yeah, what do you mean by that?" <laughs> um, but I also was already interested in nonfiction. I took a class with Robert Stone, and it wasn't a fiction class; it was a it was a nonfiction class, and that gave me this sense of just how rich nonfiction writing could be. And then Robert Stone would bring in writers that he was friends with, or he would talk about the narratives that informed certain pieces of writing that were classics of of lit- literary nonfiction, mm-hmm. um, as it was called. I don't know. If, <laughs> um, but uh, I mean, they also called it creative nonfiction then, which always seemed to me um, a little problematic. But...
1: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think all these labels have shifted and gone into use and out of use. And some people don't yeah. like long form, or that was a thing for a while. And... Uh, creative nonfiction people think it sounds like are you making it up like are you gilding it is that what that means so it's we can never settle on something I like narrative nonfiction but
2: I like narrative nonfiction too Um, I got an internship at the Paris Review having failed to get an internship at the Times Picayune, which is what I wanted to do. I wanted to go to New Orleans, and be a newspaper reporter. I tried I to do
1: that too, uh, but oh, it was as a photographer. I, I applied for a photo internship at the Times Picayune, and I'd never even heard back. No way. That we was my have, dream.
2: We could have been a dynamic duo. <laughs> yeah. um, I think that I also maybe didn't hear back. I know that I hadn't really mastered word processing in 1997, 98, and filled out my application in pen, which I then thought, like, oh, you stupid fool. <laughs> you know, they're not going to hire you. You've, like, published three poems in your campus literary magazine. Um But Robert Stone had gone to New Orleans and been a newspaper reporter. So that's what I wanted Mm -hmm. to do. Um, Anyway, I was sort of crushed by that and then felt, okay. I guess I'll move to New York. So the Paris Review internship doesn't pay. So I started doing some really um, creative freelancing and eventually, you know, it actually, I I was just lucky. One of my friends from school, one of my poet friends from school had done a summer job at the New Yorker because she was super savvy and could always like figure out these good jobs. And she converted a summer job at the New Yorker into an assistant job at the New Yorker. And this is Megan O'Rourke. And she said, they're looking for an assistant, um, an editorial assistant. So, and I just always remember this I put my resume in the mail because email was like not quite the thing yet so put my resume in the mail and John Bennett who was a really uh, amazing editor at the New Yorker who was I think maybe 30 years one of the senior editors there um, mm-hmm. he hired me to be his assistant along with I worked for John Bennett and Lee Aitken And that was the real beginning of my education in narrative nonfiction because John and Lee were very low-key editors. Like, they didn't require me to make a lot of lunch reservations or pick up dry cleaning or (laughs) anything like that. So John would usually just say, why don't you just go to the library and read everything by Janet Malcolm today? Or like this week, a
1: task. so
2: yeah. I would do that, and I I found her shopping columns from the '60s that were just amazing. <laughs> um, just the sort of variety of work that someone like Janet Malcolm did over her many decades at the New Yorker, I think, also is very freeing to realize you can start off doing one thing and then end up doing something completely different. Um, so I did a lot of reading, and then also started editing a little bit, and just even just copying the editors I worked for their proofs onto other proofs and making these master documents I could see what all the copy editors were suggesting and why or why not the editors were accepting those changes and just that was a real education for me and then I went to work for David Remnick as his assistant and obviously to be working in close proximity with David Remnick was an incredible opportunity and experience and I started writing I think the other thing that's really important is about this part of the story and for people who are listening is that the mentoring that I received was so generous. And I always try to think about how to do that for other people, even though I don't work in an office or have any jobs to offer. <laughs> um, but uh, the managing editor of The New Yorker at the time was Helen Cher and she heard me talking about something that I had done and she said you should write that for talk of the town and I really don't think I ever would have pitched something it would have taken me a long time to pitch something but she said that thing that you're talking about is a story so you should write it and she helped me kind of navigate that process and then I started doing restaurant reviews, and then I had an eating budget that was amazing, <laughs> unbelievable. <Eating budget. laughs> unbelievable when I was doing <laughs> tables for two, <laughs> and uh, but the first, it was definitely David who said, "Why don't you think about a profile? What do you want to do?" And uh, that's just an act of generosity. He did not need another person pitching him profiles, but. The first profile I wrote was a profile of Stanley Kunitz. So I felt like I could bring appreciation for the world of poetry, if not knowledge about at that age. And Stanley was this incredibly old, fascinating human. I think he was 99 or something at the time that I started interviewing him. And I would go to his apartment uh, maybe 97, his sort right near um, Washington Square Park. And then Henry Fender, who's also an incredible editor, he was my editor for my first few stories, and he really helped me um, come at it a little more directly. I think my my instinct for, you know, obliquity is, like, something that I fight against a lot. So I remember the lead was this very circuitous, like, the neighbor looking at Stanley through his window late at night, which maybe now I could make um, feel really direct and immediate, but at age, you know, twenty five or whatever, I couldn't. Um, so anyway, Henry helped me get to the point and uh, shape that into a profile that worked for the magazine, and it just gave me this sense of you know you can learn a lot by writing about the lives of, especially the long lives of really accomplished people
1: and as you as you sort of settled into doing more of those, do you feel like you gravitate towards a particular type of person in the sense of i mean, it's funny you mentioned that Florian Henkel von Donners, mark? I mm-hmm. can't because I feel like that sort of uh way of seeing there's something there because I mean that's Jonathan gold. He had this particular way of of approaching food writing and then you profile this photographer that was the one that really stuck with me and will stick with me is this photographer who just goes to the most extreme places and takes one exposure endures all this danger to just take one photograph that basically like never gets displayed anywhere it's like a lifelong project that he's putting together and then there's like in some ways James Cameron is that he's this like figure who has this particularly strong outlook in the way he sees the world and the way the world has to be. So I feel like there is something there. Um, I don't know if I'm strong enough to perceive the exact through line, but I, I thought maybe you would.
2: I do find people who take risks or artistic and physical or even intellectual risks really interesting. Why is that? I don't know. But I do think that the headline writers kind of have run out of variations on, you know, using the word extreme in the, he- in the headlines mm-hmm. or, um, or the titles for my stories. Um, it is interesting to think about people who lay a lot on the line to do their work. And especially when that's work that I find that especially interesting in artists where there is not a strict necessity in a survival necessity sense to make work like that. So I think there's also something about people who will, James Cameron, Thomas Joshua Cooper, Florian von Donnersmark, um, there's so many people that I have written about who take a really long time with their projects, where their years decades and they might or might not work out and they're innovating in certain ways and people who are just so different in that way that they just don't go along with what's received and they at a great personal cost often do things that are very different. And then those things are the things in our world that are the most fascinating or feel the most human or that the most people can connect to. They come from these sometimes chaotic, sometimes just incredibly stubborn, sometimes really attracted to danger and risk kind of personalities.
1: And kind of rejecting the practicality of it and saying, yeah, that's not like, it doesn't matter to me that this seems not possible. On its face.
2: Right. Sort of pushing the boundary of what their category of human is supposed to be doing. I don't know what that says about me. I, I just, you know, I, I like to be along for the ride. <laughs> I think that's interesting. I think that's one of the things you get when you choose an impractical career like this one. Like, you can be around that kind of person.
1: Well, speaking of impractical careers, you do still write poetry and publish books of poetry. How does that interact with your nonfiction writing if it does?
2: I've had different answers for that over the years, but I I feel like in recent years, writing poems has become an increasingly private activity for me. I really don't have a lot of need to publish poems right now, and I Maybe that's because I feel satisfied with the amount that I'm in any kind of public sphere with my other work. Maybe that's enough for me. I don't actually crave a huge amount of public life. But I think the the same sort of bent of mind is, you know, a, like, I'm interested in a telling detail. That's what I'm always... Looking for. And I don't write a poem because I want to write a poem and then I go and look for the details that will fill out the uh, rhyme scheme. (laughs) I write a poem when I see something or feel something and they crystallize, the seeing and the feeling crystallize into an image. And that can happen writing nonfiction too, if I'm fortunate. But the thing that writing nonfiction has for me, which writing poetry, doesn't is a study of character, and I think that gets back to the profile thing. That's the word I didn't mention when we were talking about what kind mm-hmm. of people I want to write about. I am really interested in character and how people's personal histories and just their temperaments inform what they do and how they react in situations. And that I think is just a you know a study of being human that I like. I, I find that really. Interesting, But because I was an English major, I wrote my um, senior paper on a poet called H.D., who was an imagist. And that's the sort of vein of poetry that I've always been closest to is a sort of uh, not narrative, not a lot of dialogue in my poem. So save that for the <laughs> nonfiction, but short and um, to the point. But the paper ended up being all about um, how much Greek she actually knew. I don't know why that was my, that's what I wanted to know. She pretended that she was translating Sappho. And she pretended that she was translating a lot of Greek poetry. And so I spent a year in white gloves looking through her personal library and all her belongings and her postcards and everything and seeing what words she looked up in her...
1: Because <laughs> I had... Like she had marked them?
2: Yeah. and But that kind of, you know, unraveling a a mystery between how something was presented and what might have actually been going on, I think I was interested in that all along. You know, the sort mm-hmm. of what seems to be what is and you know being a sort of a detective and at that time in my life I thought oh I'll be kind of a literary detective I'll probably be an academic or something but it turned out I was just much more interested in carrying around a notebook and meeting people that I would never otherwise meet so
1: um, (laughs) well and now a microphone
2: yeah I guess so
1: well thank you very much for coming on the show
2: thanks Evan it was fun to talk to you
1: That's it for this week's long form podcast. Thank you very much for listening. And thank you to Dana Goodyear for coming on. Her show is called Lost Hills. You can find it on all of your various podcast apps. It's out right now. My co hosts here are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Our editor is Janelle Pfeiffer. Our intern is Susan Peterson. And our sponsor this week and every week is MailChimp. We will see you in the next show.